I was telling someone yesterday, it's an odd combination of talent management and DEI because people go, how do those go together? But for me, it makes complete sense because inclusion and diversity and all of those different things start the moment you apply for a role, right? Like you're getting to know the company, you understand what their values are, you are welcome, it's an inclusive sort of experience that you have, and then you join the company and that should still then continue. How you integrate DEI into your business is like there, like that's a prime example of integration and not making it an add-on. That was Leaf Group, VP of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and Talent Management, Tara Turkanes. And in this conversation, I'm really excited to sit down with Tara to talk about her role at the Leaf Group uh, and actually our career together. We uh, both worked together at Ticketmaster at an earlier point in our career. We're going to talk about the impact that had on the rest of our careers and much more. So we'll be back with that conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. Support for the Redefining HR podcast comes from PIN. PIN is building the world's first employee-centric communications tool, powering fast-growing companies like Shopify, Rubrik, and Sneak. Automate messages across the employee journey so you never miss an opportunity and your employees are supported every step of the way. From onboarding to becoming a new manager and more, PIN helps companies communicate at scale. Go to pinhq.com for more information. That's P-Y-N-H-Q.com. Reinvent communications for the distributed workforce. And now, on to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Redefining HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt. And uh, today's a real treat. Today, I am joined by (laughs) Tara Turk-Haynes. She is the VP of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and Talent Management at Leaf Group. But to me, she's so much more than that. She's a former colleague and friend uh, who we worked together at Ticketmaster back in the day. And so we're going to go down memory lane a little bit. We're going to talk about what she's been up to since and uh, a lot of things. So Tara, welcome to the podcast. Um, you know, I know you well, but for the viewers and listeners who maybe don't, uh, why don't you start off with a brief introduction for yourself? Wow, I'm so excited about this. So yes, I am Tara Turk-Haynes and I am VP of DEI and Talent Management at Leaf Group. I've had many different lives. <laughs> Thankfully, I started off uh, in admin work and got recruited into HR work, took a detour into editorial, came back to startups and other things, um, all the while, you know, playwriting and gosh, so many things have happened since we last talked, you know, married. I don't know. There's so many, you know, bits and pieces of the life. Thank goodness. I'm grateful to have experienced so far. So, yeah, I mean, you've been up to a lot of things uh, and we are not going to cover even a fraction of them because you do have a pretty, uh, pretty multi-layered life. But I do want to get into some of it, obviously, uh, on the show. But let's I want to kind of get back to where we connected. So, you know, Tara and I both work together at Ticketmaster. Back in the day, uh, it's probably in the like 2000 to 2010 range, like in, in that period. You know, it's funny, like, I, I don't know, and I want to get your perspective on this as well. But for me, you know, we've both done a lot of things since then. I still look back to that experience working there as like some of the most formative experience of my years. Part of it was working with Beverly Carmichael, who I know is a mentor to both of us. Part of it was just the, the team, both within HR and the broader organization. And so there were a lot of HR memories uh, there. And I'm curious about this. And maybe if we have some of our old Ticketmaster alumni friends watching, they might be as well. Like when you look back to your time there, what was your favorite HR memory? What, what stands out to you the most? I have too many, actually, because, you know, we knew how to throw 
some really good parties as a company. I don't it, and I'm thinking like specifically they're usually holiday parties that I remember fondly bonding with the team. I think there was one year where they had like rock instruments, so we got to pose as like band members. I don't yeah. know if you remember that. I, I do remember, remember that. Those, but as a team, we were just so good about bonding and doing things that really kind of mattered. And Beverly was central to that as well. And my memories go from like small celebrations of people's birthdays and kids to even, you know, Beverly being supportive enough to like support us getting certifications or, you know, just inter- interacting with everyone on a regular basis. Like we were not an isolated. HR team, you know, we were really integrated into the company as a whole and we knew everybody. And I think that is such a valuable lesson that I take with me no matter where I go is that you're not siloed. You make a difference. You're part of the team. You're an impactful person. And all of us together with our different backgrounds just made it that much better. Almost like a rock team, right? Like we were just like a rock band, <laughs> like, you know. That's a, that's a good I would analogy. Say I'd be better on I'd be better on bass, but you were probably good with like a solo guitar, a little. <laughs> I, you know, you know me. I, I, I probably would be air. like hogging the spotlight, wanting to be a front man who couldn't carry a tune or sing. It would just be embarrassing the hell out of myself. It takes all of us. <laughs> it, it, it does. It would be entertaining for us if nobody else. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, it's funny, like uh, looking back at those days, I think what was so interesting and I think, you know, both of our, our career paths, obviously, have, you know, we've done different things, um, but I think both of them, you know, working for Beverly in that environment at that point in our careers, it instilled in us like what great HR is, what employee centric HR is, like what employee experience is. And I think what, what, what was so important, which, you know, you don't really realize when you're in it. But looking back now, it's crystal clear to me. I think Beverly was so uh, deliberate and mindful about the role of HR representing both the interests of the company and the interests of the employee. And that it wasn't a binary choice. You didn't have to. And, and like, I think for us coming up in that environment, we've applied that thinking to all of our work since. And, uh, you know, what a gift that was for us, even though at the time we're just like, hey, we're just we're following your lead and doing how she does it. Yeah, we were so lovely and naive at that time that we (laughs) thought that's how things were, right? Like you and I have both kind of been witness and part of organizations and institutions that that's not always the case. And I think it was great to know and have that foundation, but then also understand you can make that the norm because I think HR departments do have a long, you know this, a long history and of um, reckoning to undo a lot of things that people feel like have been harmful. But that environment was not that for us yeah. at all. And so it's great to, it's almost like when you see a successful relationship and you go, oh, like, that's what I want to model my life to be after. You carry that with you. And Beverly was, like, stellar at that. It was so subtle, too. We didn't know it was, like, a big deal, right? It was, like, smooth. Like, this is just how you operate, much like her personality. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think back to those favorite memories. Uh, I remember the one holiday party, I believe, in Pasadena with the Dan Band. Oh, my gosh. That, was a, that was a fun night. Um, I know. So you, you've done a lot of things since, and I want to dig into your, your current role. So, you know, right now you're running DEI and talent management at Leaf Group. What drew you to that role? Like, actually, kind of two-part question. A, what drew you to the role? And then for uh, viewers and listeners who may not be familiar with Leaf Group, if you could just take a minute and kind of describe what the business does. 
Yeah, so I'll start off with what we do. Um, Leaf Group is a company that owns media and marketplace brands. They are active in lifestyle categories. So we own like Livestrong, Ehow, Hunker, Well and Good, Only in Your State, Cuteness, MyPlate. Um, we have a collection of micro learning sites called Reference Publishing. On the e commerce side, we own Society Six and Deny Designs, uh, Saatchi Art, as well as the other art fair. So really, we make these lifestyle categories accessible for everyone like it's such an impactful business because I like to tell people you know what really motivates me every day is that a lot of companies focus on the consumer but we also have this other category of people the creative community that really drives those brands and those platforms and we change people's lives like I've literally seen testimonials of people like on Society6 or Saatchi Art who've been able to sell a piece of work that has then allowed them to either travel, pay medical bills, get a bigger following, a larger platform. On the other side, you hear people using like my plate or well and good to literally change their lives, like their outlook on life, right? And so really paying attention to that intersection for me on a regular basis, it's never lost on me because that's a purpose-driven opportunity, right? Like I'm really, I'm part of this whole movement, I would say. And, you know, what drew me initially is that you and I both work with Sean Moriarty, the CEO, uh, former CEO of Ticketmaster, who is now the CEO of Leaf Group. I like to follow smart people and I like to work with great people. And so, and that goes across the board. And like, you know, this opportunity came up. Jill Angel, who is my current boss at the time, I met her and we bonded really quickly. And so I work under underneath her and have for almost five years at this point, when you feel like you're making an impact, it doesn't really feel like work. And it doesn't even feel like five years at this point, actually. I just shocked myself by saying that. But um, <laughs> it's a job unlike any other for me right now. It really is. Yeah. And the role that you're in now is not the role that you joined Leaf Group in. So you actually had a couple different roles when you were there, but you moved into the VP of DEI specifically role in around September of last year. And so, you know, I want to spend a minute there. Like, was that, um, was that a, a role or a function that existed prior to 2020? That, or, or was it kind of created in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder? And, and just tell me a little bit about how the, how the role came to be. It did not exist. So one thing about me in my entire career, especially as a black woman, representation in workplaces has been something that I've cared about, but I couldn't avoid, right? Like I've had instances where people have said crazy things to me because of my background. And that's always been something I've been passionate about. I think that's really why I got into talent acquisition as well, because I wanted for people to see that there were roles that existed out there that maybe companies didn't go to those communities, right? Like, how would you know there's amazing roles out there like, you know, account director for home categories or things like that, not your usual sort of blue collar, middle class kind of uh, roles that you can make a difference in. And so around last year, I think it's a synchronicity of a lot of different things. Leaf Group was doing some great stuff in terms of inclusion, but we weren't articulating it. And I think that's one thing is like, it's not like we were starting from scratch. It was about like, here's what we're doing and here's what we can do. 
I kind of started doing things as a talent person and engagement person before the role existed. And then I was like, oh, there's going to be a role. Let me make myself qualified for it. I studied everywhere, did everything, read everything. And, you know, it really was helpful for me to get like certified and meet other people in the space to solidify what I thought inclusion and diversity and equitability really meant. Like I had an idea, but then I'm like, oh, this education helps me articulate exactly what I mean when I have a point of view about this and how I can impact the business. And so the role opened up. I interviewed just like everybody else. Like I really, you know, I want people to know like it wasn't like, oh, she's, you know, here and she just kind of stepped into it. Like they were like, you want it? go through the process, you know? And I thought that was amazing because that's a sign of equitability. Like that really is a demonstrating like opening up a role and making it fair for everyone. And so since then, it's been day to day. I was telling someone yesterday, it's an odd combination of talent management and DEI because people go, how do those go together? But for me, it makes complete sense because inclusion and diversity and all of those different things start the moment you apply for a role, right? Like you're getting to know the company, you understand what their values are. You are welcome. It's an inclusive sort of experience that you have. And then you join the company and that should still then continue. How you integrate DEI into your business is like there. Like that's a prime example of integration and not making it an add-on, which I can't stand when we see those kinds of things. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think we'll, we'll get into, you know, the add on comment in a minute, because I do think that you we still see a lot of that in the industry. But but I want to kind of like going back to last year, like what was it like for you moving into a role like that, like as a black woman, you know, in the climate following George Floyd's murder and the kind of conversations that were maybe happening around social justice and, and racial equity and, you know, you know, some companies going big on their verbal commitments, but maybe not back in. So, you know, you're, you're navigating that space of like moving from one role into another role that you're deeply passionate about, you know, while being a black woman experiencing all of the, the, the feelings and emotions, you know, wrapped around those moments. So just, I'd love to just get a feel for like, what, what was it like for you transitioning into that role creating that, you know, the scope of work that you'd be doing while also experiencing that moment. It's almost as though you're walking around with a very clear understanding of what your world looks like. And sometimes those around you were wearing different glasses. And then all of a sudden they just take their glasses off and they're looking like, oh, is this what you've been doing? Oh, uh, wait, this is your experience, right? And so... It's almost like we've been trying to tell you what's going on for so long. And like now we're at this moment where we're having these actual conversations. So personally, that's how I felt. And then just really day to day disappointment about how things were being handled in the world. Right. And like you're having this awakening, but you're also seeing that systems weren't changing. And so then stepping into the role I threw myself into the role because I was passionate about one thing, really, which is that from an educational standpoint, we all don't have uniform education. Like the reason why we're in this situation is because you can curate what you teach kids nowadays, right? Back in the day, like when I grew up, Detroit is nearly, was nearly 90% black, middle class. We were very clear about 
how black history informed American history. Was that the case when I went to college and met people from other areas? No, because that wasn't important, right? And so a uniform educational system doesn't really exist. And so you have people walking around with pockets of gaps and misinformation. And like, you know, even now I saw a quote the other day, the educators have a right to tell the truth. So curating history and our presence in here in this country is so important. And that's what we started off with at Leaf Group. I was like, okay, so there's a bunch of things I don't know about the 34 different categories of DEI that exist, right? But I know some categories, I'm going to enlist our people to help fill in the blank so we can all understand where we're coming from, right? Like, oh, this is what you mean when you say this, because I didn't learn this in school. So it's not something that I know, like people are just discovering Rosewood, they're just discovering things that happen. You know what I mean? Like, how much more do you not know? And how much will that inform how you deal with people? So it was hard, but the reward really is, I think initially people were just like, what is this DEI thing? Because, you know, it's a new role in general in the like whole industry for the most part, right? And so I think employees are starting to understand what does this role mean? How does this impact me in this company? So providing resources, you know, we do a lot of events. We rolled out a new platform. Like they're starting to slowly see like, oh, this is how the train works. This is how you lay the track, right? Because it's a journey. We're going to be on here for a while. We got like a couple hundred years or so to make up. So we're going to be like, it's not a fleeting sort of thing. We've got a lot of work to do ahead of us. But it was a definitely hard. But with my work ethic, I tried to channel it in a way where I felt like I was going to make a difference. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying the show. I want to take a brief break to share a new initiative that I think you'll find helpful. Redefining HR started with this podcast and evolved into a best-selling book laying a framework for modern HR and people operations. I'm excited to share the next evolution, the Redefining HR Accelerator. The Accelerator is a full platform to build, inspire, and support the next generation of people leaders, including cohort programs, courses, open source resources, and most importantly, community. Thanks to listeners like you, Redefining HR is now broadened into a entire platform focused on building readiness for tomorrow's HR today. Learn more at redefininghr.com. And now, back to the show. I'd love to get your perspective. Like, how do you feel about where we are now? Because I think, you know, obviously in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's murder, there was, you know, it, it was a part of the constant conversation, not just in, in society and business, but in HR. Uh, and I want to drill down to the HR side of that from your perspective. You know, from my kind of vantage point, I did see some organizations and some leaders, and let's be candid, white leaders, taking an honest and introspective look at, like, their own role in this and the fact that um, they needed to invest in their own education if they wanted to be in a position to make a difference for their employees. And I, and I, I like how you actually tie this back to education because it's especially in the U.S., we're not all operating from a uniform place of understanding and awareness. And so, you know, here we are now, you know, a, a little more than a year um, since George Floyd's murder. Like when you think about the progress or lack of progress that HR broadly has made, like, how do you feel about where we are today? I feel as though there are some organizations and people like yourself and others who are definitely pushing the boundaries to keep the conversation current. 
I do feel like there are people who would be much more comfortable not keeping the conversation current at all because of discomfort. There are a lot of people who have defaulted back to silence. I think from a business standpoint, it's really hard because supposedly business is about metrics and data. How are we measuring our progress? And there isn't a uniform way to say that DEI is working within business. You could do quotas, but quotas mean nothing. We all know that. At the end of the day, you could do have the Rooney Rule, and you know that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to hire more qualified candidates. You've got systems that you need to really dig deep into, and I hope that's the direction that we're going into, where we're diving into systems. Um, I think small things make a huge difference. So you know, I was. On on a panel the other day where I was talking about our goal now with our employee resource groups is to have them on our panels for interviewing sometime soon. So if there's somebody who wants to join Leaf Group, they can ask an ERG, like, what's it like really to work here, given we have a shared experience in this particular area. And there were so many HR people that thought like, oh my God, that's an amazing idea. And I was like, I didn't come up with it. It's not like my, it's like original. I'm just saying like, I'm trying to make an effort to push the conversation. And I feel like there are a lot of people who are still like, they don't know where to start. And we're walking around a little aimlessly. I'm hopeful that because we're persistent and I think I see that happening even in government where you have people like Cori Bush being persistent, right? We need models of persistence. Resilience is kind of overplayed a little bit. I'm exhausted myself, but persistence and really just digging deep and understanding what fuels you, finding out your why and keep pushing that why towards some resolution, I think is going to be the most important thing that we do. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, persistence and fatigue, I think are both uh, really good points. What you should definitely not be doing if you're in HR is like putting this work all on your ERGs, right? And I think that's a big mistake I see a lot of companies is like, oh, this incident happened. Let's grab this ERG and be like, hey, you guide us through this. I'm like, no, they're experiencing this. Like they're freaking exhausted. They're they're stressed and they're emotional and they're tired. And like, I think that the, the work um, in particular, I think as it relates to HR in a field that is roughly 70% white, the work is on us, right? The, the work is on us to kind of educate ourselves. And you, you touched on a great point, which is some of the systemic issues and like they're purposely engineered to produce certain outcomes. And so it doesn't matter what your intent is or not. If you don't educate yourself and can understand those systems, you can't dismantle them. You can't change them. You don't even know they exist in, in some cases. That's such an important point. It is, and especially since we just had Black Women's Equal Pay Day, right? I just saw on a colleague's LinkedIn where a white male commented that we don't have equal pay because we don't take roles that typically pay equal to white men, which I was like, Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know, I, know, I know what place you're talking about, too. Like, I was like, oh. It's these hot takes that are so cold because they're ill-informed. It's like you have a degree in your opinion rather than the facts, right? So you really do need to, before you have like this really, you know, what you thought was a well thought out opinion, do a little research first and go back to, you know, when did black women start actually get access to roles that you think are the actual high paying roles, you know, small things like the GI bill, like literally research things before you have an opinion on them and you actually will probably be a little bit more informed. It's mind boggling. Yeah. Um, 
hopeful. I'm, I'm afraid people making comments <laughs> like that are not really uh, interested in investing yeah. in their own education, just uh, sharing their own ignorance. Um, I, I want to, you know, one of the things that I think is so unique about your your background and experience, like I mentioned, mentioned in the beginning, you know, you have multi-layered background, you've done a lot of things. Uh, one of them is you have a superpower and it's a, it's a <laughs> gift that we don't always see in HR. You're a writer and you're not just a, a writer, you're an accomplished writer, you're a playwright. And that is, I think, particularly today in HR, as we have more of our organizations, you know, remote and we're prioritizing async and have these new hybrid constructs, our ability to write, to communicate, to, um, to influence through written words is hugely important. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how have you applied that? How has that superpower kind of come into play in your, in your day to day? I'm so grateful that because when I told my parents I was going to school for theater as a child of I'm the first gen college graduate one. So you can imagine how my mom, who used to work at the Red Cross and accounts payable, and my dad, who worked on the line at Ford for 40 plus years um, before he passed away, the resounding silence that happened. They're like, what's theater? Like, what do you mean? But I am also a Capricorn for those who believe in that. So I'm not going to ever sort of starve for my art. I don't believe in that. I think there are a lot of artists are starting to believe that too. But I also always had this capacity to understand that the brain can do multiple things. And I had this belief early on in my life, and I don't know why, but at some point things were going to converge. My whys were going to converge into something powerful and meaningful at some point. So I did both for so long, day job to eat, but also love my day job. Right now, playwriting for me and writing in general allows me a level of empathy from people who I don't share the same experience with. I am able to, if I'm crafting a story and I don't like have an intimate relationship with all of my characters, they're all like people that are make-believe, but crafting them, layering them, they're not all going to look like me. They're not going to believe everything that I believe. So when I encounter people who are from a different sort of mindset, it does allow me a level of empathy to understand kind of what they're saying and then be able to address what they're saying as well. My superpower really, not necessarily writing because that just takes discipline, but I have a love of dialogue. I have a love of conversation. And so when talking to people, I'm trying to pick up on the things that matter, right? And be able to take that and make that the focal point, which you should do in theater in general anyway, because that's your story is, you know, that dialogue is your your train track. That's how people continue on with the story. And so paying attention to that in a day-to-day basis has really helped me understand where people, different people are coming from, different backgrounds, and really just trying to find a through line to help, you know? So I think it's really been very beneficial. And at some point I'll write a book that's nonfiction about like these kinds of experiences. So that will be super helpful, but yeah, it is also a great outlet for me, for my wellness yeah. in general. <laughs> well, okay. So for viewers and listeners who maybe want to, uh, you know, work on their writing chops, any, any tips, any, any recommendations, how, how can I, how can all of us become better writers? Be a better reader, listen to people, really listen to people. Like it's really hard to take yourself out of things certain times, but the more you read and the more you listen to people, the more you'll probably understand your own personal flow and what your rhythm is and understanding like, what's your why? What do you want to say? If you're trying to walk around and say what your mission statement is, 
can you articulate what that means? And then everything else kind of falls underneath that. Like, you know what your purpose is. You know, like, okay, well, you know, I'd like to write a book about this. I'd like to talk to this person about this. I'd like to have a podcast like this. I know my purpose and I'm going to fuel that purpose with the tools that I have. And it also takes hard work. You have to write a lot. Like, it's going to be terrible. And like, I'm a huge morning pages person. You don't have to reread the stuff that makes you cringe, you know, but know that that, is a training, right? Like writing is a training. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, it, it reminds me of like a uh, Jocko Willink uh, quote around like fitness. It was like, <laughs> how do I, no, actually it was David Goggins. It was like, how do I, how do I learn how to do yeah. uh, pull-ups? And he's like, do pull-ups. Like, how do yeah. I learn to do this? How do I learn to wake up early? Wake up early. Like, how do I learn to be a better writer? Write more. So uh, yeah, some of the answers are, are much less complicated than we might make them out to be. They are. But I'll also say be comfortable with a blank page, just like you can be comfortable in dead silence. Like sometimes that doesn't mean nothing's happening. Something is always happening. There are people who talk to fill up silence because they're uncomfortable, but sit in it for a minute. See where it goes. I like that. I like that. Well, you know, we could catch up on so many more things, but I do want to make sure we've got time for our uh, our lightning round so that the viewers can get to know you a little bit more. So we're going to dive right in. You ready? Yeah. All right, Spotify. I know we're both music nerds. Uh, I'm I'm checking out your Spotify playlist. Uh, who will I learn your top three artists? Oh my gosh, Charday, John Coltrane, and the Roots. Ah, I like it. I like it. <laughs> a Beyonce, there's a Beyonce and a Jay Z in there too. But like, if we're saying top three on you a can't, regular, you can't keep them out. I'm giving you five. I'm giving you five. Uh, Thank so you. you. <laughs> I know. Even five is hard. That's really hard. But like, I do tend to go back to those three on a regular. All right. What is your least favorite HR buzzword? Degree required. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I just, oh, uh. that's just right now. That is just what's on my mind. Degree required is just, uh, yeah. yeah. I think we can, uh, I think we can toss that. It is absolutely <laughs> uh, not additive outside of maybe a very small subset of, uh, of roles. So Small, small subset. It's not usual for your coordinator. You don't need it. Uh, okay. <laughs> what is your favorite HR function? I think data. I've fallen in love with data the past few years just because I think I'm going to credit Culture Amp because I'm a huge fan. Like I have a company crush on them and we use them as well. But they have taught me to love data. Yeah. They, they will be excited to hear that. I, I know Didier and uh, Damon <laughs> and the whole team would be Loves so to hear that. I know. I know. Craig is Craig's helped out a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. All uh, they, they, They're doing good work in that space and, uh, yes. and we need it. Okay. So I know kind of you have two careers now. You're, you're a playwright and you work in HR. Uh, you can't do either of those things. What are you going to do? What's, uh, what's, what's career number three for you? I would go back to school and get every degree like forever. Like I would just continue, I would just continue to get like masters and PhDs in in like history, world history, American history. I just would dive right in. Like I'd never come out. <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> just professional student forever. I okay. I, I I like that. I like that. Then I will learn from you afterwards because uh, there's a lot to dig into there. Um, and the last question for you. Who is uh, who is one HR leader that you admire? And I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, you know steer you in a way, way because we have both loved on Beverly. I'm gonna I'm gonna take Beverly off the table. I'm gonna make you pick a, a different leader. Yeah. Not that you would have picked her, but we both have you know full love for her. So 
Uh, outside of Beverly, who is one HR leader who you admire? I'm going to say Jill Angel, not because she's my boss, but only because I have actually learned a tremendous amount from her as a people first person, like how she manifests that and interprets that and lives that day to day is a lesson in understanding. And from a leader, I've seen such vulnerability from her in a way that I just am daily inspired by. Well, Tara, thanks so much. Uh, it was awesome. You know, this is the fun part about the podcast is I got to get to catch up with old friends and, uh, and make a show out of it. So thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. I love the work that you're doing. You're spreading the right gospel. Creating this community is so important and this is such a great show and I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book, or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.